So two weeks ago, we started our series in 1 John. And uh, and then this last week, you know, we, we swapped churches. Ryan Jensima at Northwest Baptist was here preaching, and I was there preaching, and that was a fun Sunday just to cross-pollinate. We may do that again in June with our sister church up in Custer. You, you guys might have Phil Stevenson here on a Sunday morning, and I might be up there preaching. But, you know, we started 1 John two weeks ago, and there was just this key verse in First John, verse 4, that uh, John says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's really just so much more to this thing called the Christian life than simply knowing about God or exploring the concept of God or the concept of Jesus with just our intellect. We're called to a greater and deeper joy that, that really only comes from experiencing God in fellowship, in relationship. And so that implies that God can be known and that he wants us to know him. And that's, that's pretty incredible. You know, and so, so we seek to know God propositionally and intellectually, and we also seek to know God experientially and relationally. He's called us to both of those uh, endeavors. And the, the latter, the, the relationship, the experience is really grounded in the former, in the truth, in the objectional truth. Uh, not objectional, objective truth of the gospel. Um, because when experience is the thing that uh, is our authority, is reigning and ruling over us, our understanding of God is always going to be misaligned. So we need that self-revelation that he's given us in the word to steer us in our experience. And he's chosen to reveal himself objectively in and through his word, which was spoken through the prophets and the apostles is embodied and personified in the person of Jesus Christ and is now written down for us. And we, we know all those things from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So John's really careful here to begin in objectivity. That is, Jesus. this whole thing about Jesus is true, irrespective of what you and I think or believe. And, and that foundation is the thing that allows us to move into more subjectivity. You think of it, um, you think of it like building a house, right? How you decorate the walls and what color sheets you put on the bed, those are, those are very personal decisions. There's no right or wrong to that. But how you lay the foundation and how you frame up the walls, there is a right and a wrong way to do those things. And, and not only is there a right and wrong way, but if you do it the wrong way, if you're incorrect, you, you, will, you will cause irreparable damage to that home. You'll actually make it dangerous to live in. So what we're saying is, and I think what John is saying here in chapter 1 as an introduction is don't rush to the interior design until you've built a solid house, lest that whole thing collapse in on your head, right? So don't rush to the experience until you've got some of that objective truth and reality under your belt. And, and observe the manner in which John unfolds his introduction. He starts with the abstract. He moves to the objective reality, the word that was spoken, the word that was given, and that moves towards greater personal intimacy and subjective experience. And that reflects the overall teaching of Scripture, I think, which is that the Word, the truth of God, is our starting point. And our relationship, which allows for increased experience and intimacy, begins with who God is as He's revealed Himself to us in the Bible. So God reveals, and in the light of God's self-revelation, sin is revealed. That should lead us to repentance, and then repentance opens the door for experience and relationship, and growth, and understanding of the Word of God in His truth. So let's jump into the text 
First John chapter 2 right now. Read along with me. <coughs> My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's go back now and pick up verse 1. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This thought is a continuation of the previous chapter dealing with sin, and the word is being given here to keep us from sin, that we might shun it as we progress towards Christ-likeness, towards holiness. But if we do sin, and we do sin, then Jesus serves as our advocate with the Father. And so verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, is a, is a play on the ordo salutis. That's the Latin phrase that means the order of salvation. These things, he says, are written. And that comes first. And, and so we know that God's word is sufficient to lead people to salvation. Paul says that to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Uh, we, we know that John in his gospel, he says in John 20, 31, um, he, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So get the order there. Uh, God's given us his word. He's revealed truth such that that revelation might lead us to the place where we respond to it. We would believe, and then believing we'd have life. Now, that, some people get that backwards, say, no, God has to give you life so that you can believe. But the order of salutis in Scripture is, no, no, God leads you to the truth. He, he reveals himself, and then as you believe, repent and believe, then you have life. In fact, Paul would say, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. Later in that same letter in Romans 10, verse 8, all the way on to 17, he says, so, so what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Verse 10 is the clarifier here, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Later in the same chapter, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and, then he, and then he makes an argument here as to why we should go and preach. He says, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So God sends messengers. He sent the apostles in the first century to birth the church, and now he sends us as his representatives. And we preach and we proclaim the gospel, and the lost hear it, and some believe, and some call upon the name of the Lord and repent of their sins. And so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Look at verse 2. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction related to God. So it really really has two parts. It is the appeasing of the wrath of the offended party, in this case God. And then it is the, the being reconciled to that person. Whereas uh, the word expiation is another theological concept, has to do with the removal of sin. Those two things often, uh, they're, they're very related to each other, but expiation, X is out of or from, and so it has to do with the removal of sin. But the, the propitiation is the focus of John here because Jesus' atoning sacrifice was sufficient for all people, every man, every woman, every boy and every girl, But expiation only applies to those who receive Christ's sacrifice by faith. This is why John can write in his gospel, as he quotes Jesus in chapter 3, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he can say that without, you know, we obviously quoting Jesus. Jesus is not a universalist. This idea that all people will be saved, a la Rob Bell, love wins, right? He's not a universalist. But, but we'll, we'll, I'll tell you what, let's come back to this. I want to put this over on the side, table this, and I want to come back to this idea of propitiation and atonement. Let's go to verse 3, and then we'll come back to this in a moment. It says, By this we know we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Jesus is restating, excuse me, John is restating Jesus' own words in John fourteen fifteen. Jesus said, If you love me, you'll obey my commands. So that, that, that's a pretty important reminder for the people of God that Jesus would tie obedience to the claim to know him. In fact, the word know here is going to happen six times in these 14 verses, and this is a rebuttal against Gnosticism. We talked about this in week one, this esoteric knowledge that only some select few could ever attain to. You know, when the the VW bus pulls up and the door slides back and the smoke billows out, it's like, hey man, right? That's the kind of esoteric knowledge that's well not that all you know not that all that is gnostic but in some ways it really is right here here's john by the spirit making epistemological claims the epistemology is the area of philosophy that deals with uh can we know anything and how do we know things and so um you, you just kind of go is this is this even relevant to our culture today and the answer is yes because we live in a post-truth culture. We, we live in a place where you ask the average American college student, 
Uh, if there's any such thing as absolute or objective truth, and they will tell you plainly that there's not, which is funny because it's a truth claim. When you say there's no such thing as objective truth, you're claiming to know an objective truth, namely that there's no objective truth, right? It's like the, the professor, I think I've told you guys a story before, uh, uh, who, who stands up in the class and says, you can't know anything for certain. And I didn't have the philosophical savvy as a college sophomore to rebut that. But if I had, I would have raised my hand respectfully and said, excuse me, sir, are you certain about that? Do you, how do you know that? And are, how, do you know that you, how can you be certain about knowing that we can't know anything for certain? It's an inherently contradictory position. It's just, this is the world we live in. It's, it's just really jacked up. So verse 4, Jesus says, who, uh, John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So again, it's not enough just to make epistemological claims to know something. There has to be corresponding evidence that your claim is true. And so John's giving us more litmus tests dealing with our claims to know God. So, so here we're seeing like disobedience and a disregard for the word of God coupled to a profession of knowing Jesus is actually a falsehood. It's the person who keeps Jesus' commandments and obeys them, puts them into practice. That's the true convert. That's the true follower of Jesus. And, and so it's the wise and foolish builders from the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's Jesus' teaching. You know, you go, well, so one guy built his house on a rock. One guy built his house on the sand. The storm came. One house got knocked down. The other stood. What was the delineation? That, well, one must have heard Jesus teach, and the other one never got a chance to hear Jesus. But that's not what Jesus says at all. He says they both heard the message, but one put it into practice, and the other one did not. That's the delineation. It's that obedience to the commandment that is the delineation. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That is to say that those who are truly submitted to King Jesus will be marked by lives that are ever becoming more like their king, ever reflecting more of his values, his commands, and his truth to a watching world. Paul would say it this way in Colossians 1, verse 9 to 14. Paul says, from the first day we heard about you, the church at Colossae, we've not ceased to pray for you. We're asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk, live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of of God. So in the same way here John is saying, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way. Paul is saying the same thing. Our prayer is that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. Paul would go on to say in verse 12, he says, we give thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us out of the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So, so light is another one of those really common themes in 1 John. And here Paul is using the same word picture to make his point. that Once you lived in the domain of darkness, it's like my address was 666 Lucifer Way. And, and Jesus, when you, when you repented and cried out in humility, he backed up the truck 
moved you out of that neighborhood to the kingdom of the beloved son. He has transferred you. He has transferred you. Verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. And at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So what is the commandment John is speaking of? Well, what did Jesus say was the first and greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and to love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. That's the second one and it's like unto the first. And that's an old commandment. That's, that one's been around since humanity started. It was codified in the law of Moses. But the problem was we could never perfectly keep that law. We could never perfectly obey that law. We could fear God, Proverbs 1-7, which is the beginning of wisdom, but we couldn't really love God, not on his terms, not in the way that he demands love, uh, that we love him. And so the newness of the command relates to the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated for us by his resurrection from the dead, because now we have the Holy Spirit in us, not simply coming upon us to help us like in the Old Testament, but to live in us and to change us and empower us for righteousness. And that is a totally different reality than what the saints of old knew prior to Jesus. And so John alludes to Jesus's last night. After Judas has left the upper room in John 13, 34, Jesus says to his disciples who remain there, a new commandment I give you. New in the sense that Jesus is redefining love for them in terms of how God has expressed his love, how Jesus has served them. I got down on a dirty floor after a long day uh, knowing that he's getting ready to go to the cross and then he would wash their feet. And he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Not as other people have loved you, or as you have loved other people at times, then didn't love one another. He didn't say that. Jesus has become the slave and servant of all, Philippians 2. The world will know, he says, that you're my disciples, if you what? If you have this agape love for one another. And so that commandment to love one another has to find its expression. It has to find an outward working and manifestation. We call that ministry. And so my question to you this morning is, what is your ministry here at Emmaus Road Church? How are you obeying this commandment? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you say, I know Jesus, I love to walk with Jesus, but you don't obey his commandments, you're a liar. That's what 1 John says. I'm not telling you that from my heart. I'm telling you that from the heart of God expressed in his word. What is your ministry? How are you obeying? Did you know that apart from really investing, and, and, and I don't mean sporadically attending like every third week, I mean really investing yourself in the local church, you cannot obey this commandment. And there are about 20 to 30 other commandments in the New Testament that you are unable to obey as well if you are not investing yourself, investing your life in a local church. What are you doing? to demonstrate the agape love of Christ to others. What is, what, think about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 3. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? It's to love, right? Love. And, and, and God's just, he, he will not let me as a pastor 
teach this to you without shining his light into my heart also. Because as a pastor, I have to model this. I have to have ministry. I have to be reaching into the lives of people. I have to model what this looks like. It's just like being a parent. Parents can't just command their children and tell them what to do. Parents have to demonstrate and model and show their children what to do. That's far more powerful and effective. Parents, by the way, just who, just so you know, parents who bark orders and never model for their kids uh, what is right, they breed rebellious kids who hate authority. And so there's a reason why love comes first in Galatians, because everything else, everything else flows out of it. Verse 9, he says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is actually still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is actually still in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't even know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. That's a, that's a huge statement. You think about love and hate, the strength of those words in relationship to each other, the greatest commandment and the second one like unto it, to love, that's, that's huge in God's list of priorities. That's, that's at the top of his list of priorities. And then this love is a, uh, a demonstration of our love for God is to actually love people. You can't say, I love God, who you haven't seen, we'll see this later, and, and then not love people that you can see. You can't do it. It's a lie. And so, you know, to make sure we talk about L3 all the time, love God, love people, and live generously. Love God, love people, live generously, because the, the, every next one of those is an outworking of the one before it. So we say we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, if that's true, then one of the natural byproducts of loving God is that we're going to love people made in His image. We're going to care about them. We're going to especially care about their eternity and want to share the gospel with them and want to love them to Jesus. And then if we're loving God and loving people, then a natural outworking of that is to live generously because we're going to look at our, at our stuff and our resources and go, man, this could be better put to use to see people come, to, come into the kingdom. I don't need to hoard all these things to myself because I'm only here for a little while. And there's a mission here that deserves all of my attention and energy and focus. And I'm going to shovel more resources in that direction. And then you end up living generously. And so that's, that's the call here, right? Love covers over a multitude of sins. And, and, and that seems to be the linchpin in, in this litmus test. Verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, this section speaks to discipleship. It speaks to the stages of maturation and development that happen in the life of, uh, of all humans biologically, but all, also happen in the spiritual lives of all people who come to faith in Christ. You start out as a baby, as an infant in Christ, and you need spiritual milk. And as you grow and mature, you move on to the meat of the Word, and you develop into the fullness of adulthood, and you're walking with Christ. And here to make sure we're very intentional about that progression. We really want to help people move beyond being baby Christians. We want to see them born into the kingdom, born into the Spirit, but then to progress and grow and mature in the same way that you want your kids to grow up and leave home, right? You don't want... <coughs> Excuse me. 
you don't want them there at the house forever. You want them to grow up and, and go into the world. But there's, there's more to say about this, uh, to be sure. But what I want to do the rest of our time this morning is circle back to verse 2 and the atonement and propitiation because I want to go deeper with this and I want to unpack this a little bit. It's super important for us to understand. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what I want to do is what Paul would do. He would start with an objector. He would, he would anticipate that at some point somebody would say, well, yeah, but, right? And, and that objection and that person being the objector or the interlocutor in, in Latin, if you're in debate, speech and debate at all, um, you anticipate that and then you answer it before that actually has a chance to come up so that people are, you short circuit the objection. And the objection that people make here in chapter 2, verse 2, is that the word world or cosmos here in Greek actually doesn't mean the whole world or everybody in the world. It means some of all kinds of people in the world, not every person. So Jesus is not really the propitiation for every man, woman, boy, and girl. He didn't really pay for the sins of every person. He only paid for the sins of some of all the kinds of people in the world, not, not every person. So, so let me give the correction to that objector, okay? Because uh, it starts with good hermeneutics. That's the art of the science of interpretation. And the best thing you can hope for when you're studying the New Testament, especially if, you, if you're studying in the Greek and you're getting into some of these words, is to find the same author using the same word or phrase in his own writing, right? Now, you can find it in another letter or, you know, in John's case, you can go back to the Gospel of John because he's pretty consistent with his word usage. But to find it in the same work uh, used again will give clarity to the word usage. And so what we find in First John in chapter 5, verse 19, is that John writes that the whole world, that word cosmos again, is under the sway of the evil one. Now, nobody who's, uh, who believes the Bible, who's studied Christianity and, and professes faith in Christ has any trouble believing that the whole world in, in chapter 5, verse 19, means the whole world and every person in it. There's no problem there. The problem is in, in chapter 2, verse 2. But chapter 5, verse 19 gives us clarity on the other usages. Now we know we have the best possible scenario for clarifying John's intent in chapter 2, verse 2. The gospel appeal is for all. It cannot mean some of all kinds of people, but it does mean all unbelieving people without exception. So the gospel appeals for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Christians should agree that all are to be the recipients of the well-meant gospel offer. The atonement of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save all. Christ's death is sufficient for all. And we, we agree that the value of Christ's atoning work is sufficient to cover the sins of every man, woman, boy, and girl. You're like, why do you keep saying that phrase? Because... I want to pound it into your heart that you understand this reality. The issue of Christ's propitiation concerns all sin and all sinners, not just some that God has preselected. But the atonement only benefits those who believe. That's the clarifying point. It only benefits those who receive it in faith. 
Christ's death is only efficacious, that word means working, it's only efficacious for those who respond in faith. And so we talked, uh, several weeks ago, we talked about the, the, the atonement, the question of extent and intent and application. And so I want to just go through that real quickly again. We talk about the extent of the atonement, and, and we, we're, we've already laid the groundwork there. The extent of the atonement is that the atonement is sufficient to save all, that Jesus has paid for all of the sins of all of the people of the world, every man, woman, boy, and girl. That's the extent of the atonement. Now, on the question of intent, we have two options. On the question of intent, there are some in the, in the Christian camp who say God's intention is to certainly save, that word is very important, certainly save people by his son's death. That, that, that means um, he's already decided with certainty who he will save, already decided who they are before he even created. He's already picked his team. Uh, that, that view is held by uh, five-point Calvinists um, who, who would say that God's intention is only to effectually save the elect. Uh, it's also held by universalists like Rob Bell who conclude that God's intention is to effectually save everybody. It's not a it's not limited. The intent was everybody gets saved, whether they believe in Jesus or not. That doesn't matter. God's intention is to save every person. And we, we just say that's option number one. But option number two is that God's intention is to provide payment for all people, which is only effective when the individual believes in faith. That's called provisional atonement. And that is what we believe and teach at Emmaus Road Church. So the extent the intent, and then the application. We hold and affirm that whosoever will. John three sixteen. what did Jesus say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever will, what? Yeah, may, may believe, may come. Whosoever will may have faith in Jesus, may, may come to Christ, right? That's exactly right. Respond to God's Saving grace. And let me just let me just walk you through a few more verses to support that position. First Timothy two six. Christ gave himself as a ransom or a payment for all. First Timothy four ten. Paul writes by the Spirit of God that, that Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now why would you make that distinction? Of course he's the Savior of all believers, but the Savior of all men, because Paul is arguing there's a sense in which Christ is the Savior of unbelievers, and that in that he died for their sins, though they reject his payment on their behalf. Yet in a special sense, in the full sense, he's a Savior of those who believe, because by faith they receive Christ's payment for their sins. Second Peter 2, verse 1, Peter refers clearly to unregenerate people as denying the master who bought them, redeemed them. And in doing so, they're bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Okay? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 20. The love of Christ controls us. It compels us because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. Did you see that? One died for all. And then verse 15, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whose sake, for their sake was was died excuse me died and was raised. Um, the, the point of that is one died for all. Yet there's a distinction. He died for those so that those who live that that distinction indicates that while Christ died for all, only some will live 
through him, because only some will respond in faith. But we, we could go on. John 3.16 and Romans 5 indicate God's love for the entire world. Christ came to save sinners generally. First Peter, uh, no, excuse me, First Timothy 2, 2 Peter 3, Ezekiel 18 uh, show us that God wants all to be saved. There are about a dozen other texts that we just don't have time to look at this morning. But this is the provisional nature of the atonement. It's just like the serpent who's lifted up on the pole in the desert in Numbers 20 was provided for everyone in the camp. It only benefited the ones who looked at it in faith for healing. This is why Jesus uses that very word picture in John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus uh, bringing that, that, that story out of numbers to illustrate his redemption. And when the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw him into himself. Right? This, this using that picture of the, serp, the bronze serpent on the pole, that just as it's provided for all, only those who respond in faith benefit and receive the healing. And then I want you to consider this next point very carefully. Very carefully. Please hear me. I say this because I love you and I care about you and I care about the gospel and I care about the reputation of our church. Since the offer of salvation is clearly to go to all people, we know that from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we know it from Acts chapter 1. Since that's true, there must be a payment made on behalf of those to whom the gospel offer is extended. Otherwise, it is disingenuous. You hear me? Do you hear me? Let me clarify that for you. If payment has not been made for everyone, then we cannot sincerely say that God offers salvation to everyone. You cannot stand and preach the gospel to a crowd of people and say, God wants you to be saved, because the fact is, God doesn't want all of them to be saved if you believe that he's already chosen his team. You can't even fall back on the notion that, well, we don't know who God has elected. We don't know who he has and hasn't saved. So we preach the gospel to all and we just let him sort that out. Can I just say to you, that's not a viable option. You are still lying to many who would hear that gospel appeal if you believe that God has already picked his team in advance. There's still people in the crowd hearing that who would be deceived into believing that they could be saved if God's already decided that they can't be saved. If payment's not been made for everyone, we cannot sincerely say that God offers salvation to anyone. And since we are commanded to preach the gospel to all people as Christ's ambassadors, the unlimited atoning sacrifice of Christ renders this offer of salvation fully and uncompromisingly genuine, and that is the message that we preach. So I ask you again, church, what are you going to do with the man Jesus? He's gone to an awful lot of trouble to buy you. Did you know you could have a brain full of the right information and never embrace salvation that's being offered to you? Did you know that you could have a working understanding of all doctrine and never actually enter into a relationship with the one true and living and loving God with Jesus as your propitiation? I just tell you, that's a sad reality for far too many in the church. And I want to know, what are you going to do with this God who so desperately loves you? We read through 1 John, and as we continue this series, I suggest one thing to you as you think about these things, consider these things, face the challenges of your days and your weeks. Err on the side of love. Someone will ask me this question this week. Well, what if somebody, I've got this person in my life, and they, they don't believe all the same doctrines that I believe. What do I do? And the answer is love them with the love of Jesus. Someone will ask me, 
Well, what if I got this person in my life that's saying really mean and hateful things about me? You love them with the love of Jesus. Well, what about the love them? Well, what if this would love them? Listen to Paul again, 1 Timothy 1. The aim of our charge is love that issues out of a pure heart and a good conscience with a sincere faith. And certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. They desire to be teachers of the law, and they neither understand what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul says, love is the thing that keeps us on track because love issues out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And when you turn away from love as your motive and what you do as a Christ follower, you will swerve into vain discussions. And you may desire to be a teacher. You may desire to have ministry. But you will, you will wander away. You won't understand what you're saying. You won't understand what you're talking about. Because the goal of any teaching should be love. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, love builds up. So if, you're, if your time with other Christ followers during the week is centered on debating doctrine, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if that's the, that's the bulk of what you do, and there's no concern being expressed for the hearts and lives of the people that you're with, you're not loving them, you're puffing them up, and you're probably puffing yourself up too. It's this new old command. It's this new old command to love each other. To love each other. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers, and if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. That is to say, it doesn't matter if you prophesy. It doesn't matter if you speak in tongues. It doesn't matter if you know the future. You might already have figured out who the Antichrist is. Good for you. You can have every doctrine exactly right, but if you don't have love, it is meaningless. It is worthless. But did you miss it in the text? Did you see? He says, understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. That's a, that's a term we call omniscience. Who do we know that's omniscient? That's right. God. God is omniscient. God is omniscient. Who has all the power so as to move mountains and is omnipotent? God is. Well, who gives things away and pours out provision on people, even those who don't deserve it? Who gives food and air and water and sinful humanity? Who's, who's this omnibenevolent person that we know? God. God is. But then by his own definition, by his own standard of love revealed in his word, if he doesn't have love, if he's not motivated by love, if that's not the reason for it all, it doesn't mean anything. It's worthless. This is not a God who says, look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at, look at how, make, make much of me. I'm so glorious. This is a God who hangs on the cross and says, I love you. This is what humility looks like. Repent. Come to me. Be reconciled. I'm the God that you fear hanging on the cross for your sins. All the power, all the supernatural manifestation, all the knowledge, all the sovereignty, 
It means nothing apart from God's love for sinful humanity. And in keeping with his character as revealed most fully in the person of Jesus, he tells those who would follow him and who would be his disciples that we must love one another as he has loved us. Not optional. Not optional. What will you do with this man, Jesus? Gone to an awful lot of trouble to buy you. Brain full of all the right information, still never embrace salvation. All the right doctrine without love, it doesn't mean anything. We're not promised tomorrow. I urge you today as we respond now in song, you do business with the one true and living God. You take time to respond to him and let him speak to your heart. You respond in faith now as we sing.